Okay. Old Cam and Paul's talking radio show. <laughs> oh, there we go. We're now recording. Let's <laughs> see if I can put a little chord to that. Uh, what do we played in a little D? Well, that's Cam's and Paul's. <laughs> Okay, uh, you realise okay. that's going to be out there. So, uh, Paul, I wanted to, I wanted to ask you because I know a lot of things about you, pretty much hmm. a lot of things about you, but people listening don't have a clue. And the thing that I was wondering about was, like, especially when you talk about the paramedic thing, how long have you been a paramedic? Yes, well. Um, I have been in that business now for 16, I think pushing 17 years. Which just blows me away because I can remember talking to you about going for the interview yes. when you were going for the interview. for So 16 years as a paramedic yeah. and now you're, what are your qualifications can, now as a paramedic? Can I just, just before I answer that question, can I just want that interview thing back because, is that right? Mm. Uh, because... I, the interview and my whole uh, entrance into ambulance was absolutely by by, by just by mistake. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, I just got distracted by yeah. that screen. Yeah. yeah, so it was just and it was absolutely by default. So um, uh, I was happily working away as a, a manager for training for a, a large rehabilitation uh, firm in in the country, and uh, we needed more trainers. I used to run around the country doing training for the unemployed and uh, people that were down and out, out of luck, out of hope. Uh, my job was to go and um, run workshops to try and give people self-esteem and confidence and try and get them broken people back into the workforce. And so that expanded and I needed to employ uh, some trainers. And one of the trainers that applied was the community, national community, state community educator for ambulance, who's a paramedic. And I thought, oh, wow. I was so, I just thought that was so cool. And, uh, and I was interviewing him and I said, why would you want this job when you've got that job? And he'd been in the business for 20 years. And he said, mate, I'm looking for a change. Other man's grass is always green. Mm. And uh, so uh, anyway, long story short, I ended up giving him the job. And uh, then he said, you know, you can just go and apply for the ambulance. I said, what, really? He said, yeah, just put an online application. So I, I left work that day, went home, put an application, not thinking for one moment anything would come of it. And then a series of letters kept coming back. And, and I kept on ticking the box and ticking the box. And I had an interview, and then an interview, and then a psych interview. And... Um, and then I got a letter to say you start on such and such a day. So I never, ever, ever intended that I, that this was actually going to unfold, but uh, it, it eventually did. Yeah. Well, what 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 attracted you to the idea of being an ambulance when when you when you when you were talking to the paramedic and you went, oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Well, I guess I've always been in the people business. I'd always work with people. I always liked the idea of being a speaker, uh, motivating people, helping people. So I really like that. I really like that idea that I guess uh, in Max, uh, when I was working for Max Network, I was as a manager of training. So I was, I was in the people industry. I was always doing some psychology kind of platform, working with people, trying to help them in so many ways. Always wanted to be a counsellor, always wanted to be a psychologist, always wanted to do something around that area. So, and I'd always worked in the medical field. I, as a younger bloke, I worked um, 16 years, uh, 10 years in veterinary medicine and um and so i had the sort of the medical side of thing i had the medical interest i had the psychology kind of interest and and then ambulance came along and i thought wow this is everything it's it's medical it's working with people it's helping people uh, uh a lot of the times in crisis and so yeah i guess that 
that, that bit of adrenaline pump and the bit of extra excitement that went with ambulance of not knowing where you're going and what you're doing. I'm, I'm a man of, that needs constant need of change and variety. I, I just can't sit there and do the same thing every day. So then so how did it, it, but now you're, because you, the other day you said you were out there by yourself. So now you're a paramedic by yourself sometimes. Uh, yeah, so. And then in a team. Yeah, so paramedic, you can be a dual responder, uh, which is what most of ambulances have been made up with over the years. Uh, but they're now starting to make us give it an extended scope of practice and making us a single officer respond, uh, responder. Uh, and they've done that at two levels. You can work at high acuity, so you can be a single responder, high acuity, or you can be a single responder, uh, low acuity. So you virtually become a doctor on, uh, a pretend doctor, if you like, on wheels, running around uh, mopping up all the... Uh, all the chronic disease and all that, all that stuff where we're trying desperately to keep people out of hospitals because everybody wants to go to hospital and the hospitals can't manage things anymore. So they're starting to look at ambulance and paramedics. Well, hang on, we can train these guys up. We can give them some um, uh, more um, toys to play with and a high scope of practice. And they can run around to all these houses and, and, and maybe help um, diagnose, treat on site without having to cart people to hospital. So... Uh, that's the the work that I have got into now as a as a single responder. But, so, but as a single responder or a dual responder, which work do you find the most satisfying? Ah, well, that is an interesting question. The first six or seven years of an AMBO's life, uh, you are so excited to get the code, the code ones, which co anything that's a code one is a lights and sirens job. You're going to a short of breath, chest pain, um, car accident. So, so I guess for the first few years of your life, you're, you, 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 the, the call goes off and, you, and it's a car accident and for some strange reason you go, you beauty, <laughs> and, you, and you wander out because there's a bit of, there's a bit of trauma and, and you're called upon to try and, and use your kit. So, so that works well for a, a period of time, I guess as you've been in the business and you mature. Um, and you've been there, done that a thousand times, then the lights and sirens and running around everywhere uh, isn't as uh, as appealing and you start to get burnt out, obviously, going to lots of that stuff. So so I guess um, you start to then look at, uh, yeah, and you become, uh, you, you end up with a high medical knowledge. Um, so you're using your, you're, you're, you're using that knowledge a lot more than that sort of fine window of just of acute knowledge in uh, that comes with trauma. Uh, so yeah, I, I guess just my natural growth. I I did enjoy the lights and sirens. Uh, now I enjoy sitting down with complex patients with complex needs and work through complex problems and and uh, and find ways to help people through their through really difficult moments. For example, you could be a you could call me because your mother's palliative care. Uh, she has cancer. She's living at home. Uh, you've been caring with her for a few years. Uh, you're struggling to care with her. Her needs are getting higher. Um, uh, you know, you don't know where to go, what to do from here. You call the ambulance and you'll get someone like me that comes out um, with all that knowledge and all that experience, hopefully all that, that wisdom behind you, uh, to talk through those complex problems. So I become your, your broker, if you like, to uh, where we go from here. And if I do that job really well, I can solve so many people's problems. But if you... It's a really, I don't know if it goes from that, but it's a curiosity thing. If you go around to someone's place like that and they, they've called you up and then you go around there and there's the cancer patient and they've died and they're obviously not, you know, no resuscitation, 
do you have to carry them away or can you leave them there what you know is there we always our, our diet of how death is treated is is warped by media and this idea of you know csis and coroner whatever yeah. but how many times is it you just go around there and there's a deceased person and you just can go yep that person's dead um and that's it fine um we'll get the undertaker around is that well yeah obviously we go to lots of dead people yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. And, and natural that, causes. Yeah, those yeah. natural scenarios you just said, and, and, and obviously natural causes, or we get welfare checks into people I haven't seen old Harry that lives next door, mm. that, so the ambulance gets caught for a welfare check, we knock on the door, no one's there, we, we break in and there, there's poor old Harry. Uh, dead, yeah, dead what, what's next? What, what do you have to call well, the police? Or do you have to... Well, yeah, I, I guess there's a misconception that um, ambulance transports deceased people, but uh, we don't, we don't yeah. transport. If somebody dies, if we're treating them and they die in our care, they're obviously in the ambulance and they can stay in the ambulance. If, yeah. if we get to a deceased person, uh, we don't transport. We are not the undertaker. It's not our role. So, uh, so if I get to a deceased person's home, uh, our job then is uh, if, it's a, uh, if it's a suspicious, uh, there's any suspicious circumstances, we don't know why someone's died or they haven't been sick or anything like that, the, the, uh, the next port of call is the police. Uh, so the police will then come around and they will decide whether it's suspicious or not and then that person is eventually picked up by the undertaker uh, and will eventually go and have an autopsy and, and a, a cause of death um, will be, will be um, noted. But then you can also go to people's homes. So let's just say, uh, let's just say you're, you're caring for your, your old mother. She was crook uh, with cancer. We knew she had cancer. We knew she was palliative. Uh, and then you've rung me and we get around there and she's, you've woken up and she's deceased. In that scenario, it's really not necessarily suspicious. Uh, we know she's sick, we knew she had cancer. Do we really want the police to come in and haggle you with their uniforms and guns and their mm. threat? You know, it's all, all a bit invasive when the police come as well. So then we try and manage it without the police. Now the only way we can do that then is we need to uh, ring their general practitioner and get a, a doctor's certificate uh, for a cause of death. So if I can get to your house and your mum's passed, uh, I don't think it's suspicious when I walk in the door. I'll call the GP and I'll just say, hey, look, Mrs. Such and Such has, has passed. I believe you've been looking after her the last few years. Uh, it looks like, from my point of view, uh, it's natural causes here. And the doctor uh, will turn around, hopefully, most of those occasions here and say, yes, we'll give you a death certificate. If the doctor writes a death certificate, we don't need the police. We can then go straight to their private undertaker to which then you might turn around and not have an undertaker. So you might ask me, uh, do you know any good, good funeral <laughs> homes? Sometimes I think I should get a commission on yeah, funeral sure. homes. Um, so, uh, so I might say, look, I think White Lady Funerals is great uh, from my personal experiences. And then, I, then I'll broker that deal. I'll make the call to the, um, because that person's obviously upset, I'll make the call to the funeral uh-huh. home. I'll organize, uh, and then, we'll, then we'll, stay with that, um, we'll stay with you for the next half an hour. To and that happens fairly often. Look after yeah. your welfare, because yeah. we're not going to walk out and leave you with a deceased yeah. person, because that's pretty scary. Yeah. So we'll look after you, uh, we'll look after the patient, and we'll wait for the undertaker to come. Undertaker comes and ambulance leaves. Yeah. And so, uh, going back from that now to back to the seven years of lights and sirens, yeah. the first seven years, how much of it, how many times is it like countless times where you've been called to something where it's like you've got to hold down pressure on the wounds to stop somebody bleeding out? And is it like what you've done has saved a life on the spot? How many times, you know, has that happened? 
it's this conception that is happening all the time. The ambulance turns up, and miraculously they do their magic and you've saved a life. How many times is that? Yeah, not a whole lot. Not a whole lot. Not yeah. a whole lot. Again, I think one of the great misconceptions of ambulance work is that uh, we save lives, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which kind of sounds uh, ridiculous. But look, uh, 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 we, we do, obviously, and we can. And I have been at the back of many people that uh, I think the ambulance intervention, sometimes I walk away and think, well, if we didn't come, they would have been dead. Um, but it's a really small percentage. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, the big bleed outs that someone's, you know, severed their arm off by, you know, a... A, car, a chainsaw or a shark or mm. and the ambulance role is crucial um, you, you know you could count on your hand in your one hand on your career in your career oh, okay. yeah. um, but then again things like anaphylactic uh, anaphylactic shock someone yeah. eats nuts and they uh, you know their, their airways closes over uh, they if the ambulance doesn't get there and get that sorted um, then those people are gone so lots of like less traumatic things but are, yeah. uh, but are traumatic yeah. Um, so anaphylaxis, obviously heart attacks, we go to thousands of, but we don't get many back. Ah, what, uh, in, what, in, they're, they're either dead or they're not going to die? or They're either dead or they're or, um, doing CPR and shocking them and the whole CPR process. Yeah. Uh, just the data and stats on getting people back generally aren't, aren't good. Yeah. Uh, it does happen, but it's, it's, it's pretty poor. And then the viability of somebody, even once you've got them back, uh, um, is uh, like uh, that job I went to with my brother uh, <laughs> when I got I was working in the ambulance and I got a job uh, the other day uh, cardiac arrest at Woolworths and uh, rocked up there and it was my my brother who lived in the area that happened to be the person that uh, that witnessed the the arrest and then he's calling the ambulance up he didn't even know it was me when I when I rocked up so I rocked up and and my brother was coordinating the job. But, um, but yeah, this, this bloke was about 55, six odd, uh, just went down the street with a, to get some bread rolls uh, out of Woolies, walked back in the car, felt faint and bent over. And my brother saw him bent over in the car and, and uh, went to, uh, went to uh, see if he was okay. And then he realised he wasn't breathing. He actually stopped breathing, just collapsed in the car. And so they popped him on the, popped it on the ground. All the people from Woolies came out. They had a little defibrillator. They started, they started working on him. And, um, and yeah, so we got there, we worked on him. We were probably giving him CPR for half an hour before we got some kind of spontaneous return of circulation and bouncing on, jumping on his chest all that period of time and giving him adrenaline and all the stuff we do during the ambulance. And ironically, we delivered him alive uh, to the hospital. Now he went, after that he was in coronary care. He was put in a juice coma for about a week. Uh, I believe he's still alive. Um, today but how viable he is he might be around long enough just to to condition the family and say goodbye to everybody but it's pretty traumatic once you you've, you've been given cpr and someone's bounced on those ribs of yours for half an hour and the potential of heart damage and the potential of brain damage and there's so many factors against you to come back and uh you know we, we watch on on shows like all the doctor shows yeah, like yeah. Grey's anatomy boom, and boom yeah. and they go boom and and then good old Harry's up there chatting to you half an hour later. Well, that, that unfortunately, that crap just doesn't happen in real life. Doesn't so. happen. It doesn't happen at all, or just so. so no, that's um, just crap. It's just crap. Is it? No, well, it, well, it's absolute crap because in Grey's Anatomy, more more often than not, they they go into flat line as it, you know, just yeah. where there's no, and then the doctors and and nurses run Bring in and room. they say stand clean and they put the defibrillators on the flat line, which means no electricity, which means you can't even shock that. It's a non-shockable rhythm. 
but they shock it and and bang it goes straight back to a normal cardiac rhythm and half an hour later the patient's thinking you know. having a chat thanks. so um so you can't even shock a flat line rhythm it's actually against our our protocols to do that so generally you're not you're not you've got buckley's and none coming back from a flat line well it's whenever you talk about this because it's we're in that age the 50s yeah. age group and it's always you know you go i always wonder you know so you try to keep yourself reasonably healthy maintain you know i do you do a reasonable weight you exercise you get everything all your checks done that you can get done yet still you just have this specter of this you know 40 50 people a day are dropping dead from heart disease in australia that is is it something we should all be concerned about is it yeah. or, or, or what were there pre-existing conditions with this person uh, well well look he was he was overweight and probably just had all the comorbidities that many people do just unexercised overweight didn't care for himself too well uh, which unfortunately is is so many of us but but one in four of us now have one four one in five of us have cardiac disease in this country so that makes about four million. Four million of us. Yeah, but how many of those cardiac disease are, are, are preventable? I mean, oh, a, a, a huge amount. A, a mass, I mean, it's 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 probably one of the most preventable diseases. But we just we think the pump's going to do its dance. We're going to get born. We're going to make it through to eighty years of age. We're not we're not going to service. We're not going to touch the pump. Uh, we're going to we're going to feed it shit. We're going to stress it out. Um, and uh, and you know that the, the lines, the, the coronary arteries, those three little precious arteries that mm. that run the heart, just uh, yeah, they get clagged up full of crap and stress, and you walk so around you one day it? and drop dead. Well, yeah, if you if you just said to somebody, if you somebody said to you, okay, well, I want to right now, I want to unclog my, get as best as possible. You know, you say haven't had a tune up. What do you do? Well, if you're over 50, maybe mm. over 45, because one in five of us have cardiac disease now from the ages of 25, 25. in this country. From diet and exercise? Yeah, diet, yes, poor yeah, sedentary poor lifestyles yeah. and things like that. So, so I think you have to... So we service our cars and we look after our cars. Yeah, so what, what's a service involved? Hearts. So we've got, a service, we've got to be servicing our hearts. <laughs> yeah. So I guess the service involves, first of all, uh, uh, maintenance and prevention is everything, which gets down to obviously uh, regular exercise and and uh, a good diet. Yeah. Just the basic foundations, which nobody seems to be able to really follow. But there's, but there's so much misnomers and internet myths and eat this food and don't eat this food, do this exercise, don't do this exercise. If you're over 50, don't do this exercise. If you're over 50, do this exercise. If you're over 50, eat this, don't eat this. How do you sort the shit out? Where, where, where do you go to to get the basic, <laughs> the basic, like, okay, the nuts and bolts of it? Is it, is it, is it as simple as, um, what is it, eat mostly fruit and vegetables, you know? Yeah, well, it, it, you know, raw food, and, is it, and cut out on processed food? If it comes in a package, be careful with it? Or is there something more? You well, know? look, I, I think I, I've got a, a particular theory on all of this. Uh, and it's it does it's not it's not backed by any PhD or anything like that, but yes, there is so much data. There yeah. is there you can go to Google and Doctor Google, and which people do go through hundreds of plans and hundreds of plans and diets and things and how to look after themselves. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I would say this: we are human beings, which means just the basis of being a human is that you would hope 
we have a reasonable amount of intelligence. And, and so should we be able to look after ourselves reasonably sensibly without having to plough through 500 different doctors and medical journal articles that all, that all contradict themselves? Because mm. you can go and get a PhD on one thing and a PhD that says something else. So I think you're just chasing your tail looking after stuff. So, I mean, to put in its most basic term, I always say to people, don't eat shit and expect to feel terrific. Mm. Uh, now, in that, eight, in that eight words, don't eat shit and expect to feel terrific. So what does that mean not to eat shit? Well, that we've got Woolworths and Coles that are, that are just predominantly full of shit, predominantly full of stuff in jars and cans that it's been manipulated, heated up, chemicaled up, so preserved it up and, st- and smashed into a can. Yeah, yeah, but ha- yeah, I know that. What am I going to eat then? So tell me what I am going to eat, not what I'm not going to eat. Well, I think I think the the, the further away from pro- processed foods you can you can keep your life, the better off you're going to be. Yeah. Well, the further off you can remove yourself away from a can or something that's been made manufactured in a in a um, you know a factory, the better off you will be. Well, that you know, my dad who lived till ninety three, so and then, but meat and three veg. I mean, from that era that had meat and three veg. That was in meat and free veg. Yeah. It never was never never processed. Nothing processed. Yeah. Generally, just potato and a carrot and a meat and free veg. Yeah. And and a beer every day. You've got to remember, as soon as it's put into a packet, yeah. uh, it's been manipulated big time by human hands. It has to be because it's got to be preserved. It's got to be made t- tasty. So it's probably got excess sugars and all that sorts of sodiums and and things. And it's got all kinds of chemicals to preserve it and look after it. So as soon as it's in a package, you're in strife. So this is really good sort of segue because 17 years ago, Ambulance started. You started with Ambulance. Mm. And then before that, you were doing training and that training organisation. But along the way, I mean, now you've evolved from Ambulance into doing presentations on health and well-being. And this is your ballpark. This, yes. is, this is your wheelhouse, as yes. they say. Yeah. Your wheelhouse is talking about diet and exercise, stress management. Yeah. And all those things to yeah. mostly men our age. Well, well men and women, but yeah. I seem to yeah. often have a large percentage yeah. of many of my audiences. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And is that, over the years, how much of your ambulance work has made you passionate about this? Oh, it's the entire basis of it. My, my entire speaking gigs now, talking to people, are they, are they micromanaging themselves well or they micromanage themselves sick, which is the theory behind my presentations. How do we prevent ourselves getting physically ill? How do we present ourselves from getting prevent ourselves from getting mentally ill? That entire presentation, that two two hour presentation, has been totally built by sixteen years, seventeen years in the ambulance, crawling into people's homes, uh, and plucking out all the things that I need to do to not become those people. Yes, yeah, so not to, not to become my patients. Not to become your patients, yeah. and, and to try and stop other people from becoming absolutely your patients. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, good. That's what the the thing that I've noticed about you as an ambulance person is not that you've got a lot of knowledge and all this sort of stuff. Is it's a similar thing that I've noticed about people I know who have been policemen for a long time. So policemen, police women, they develop a hard edge, whereas mm. they they see because they see a bunch of shit when they go to in their day to day life that I don't see because I live a naive, sheltered little hedonistic lifestyle that I don't see that and so they develop this hard edge where they always see 
the bad. Mm. And as what I've noticed about you is because you see so many things for health reasons, you always notice the risk and the health problems. And that's what I notice because you see it all the time, you've seen it all the time, you'll notice things that I don't even think about as the health problems of things. And you've got that, you, you're always risk assessing is your, seems to you, everything you do is a risk assessment because you've seen so many things. Is that right? Or yeah, absolutely. And if I can give a, uh, I give a <laughs> sort of a throwaway example of that, even though we're kind of talking around nutrition and hearts yeah. and food and all that sort of stuff. But, uh, <laughs> but when I was with my um, ambulance partner the other day, I was giving her a lift home from, from work. And um, we, we, were, we were driving um, out of the ambulance station and uh, we saw a, a car was parked on the side of the road and then we noticed somebody was in it. Uh, just someone innocently parked on the side of the road. And we both, drive, we both drove past, we both weren't, we didn't acknowledge that we, anything about that car until half a kilometre once we passed that car, um, something came up about the person in the car and, and Tamara turned around and she said, I hope that, um, hope that person hadn't, uh, is not dead inside that car. And I said, oh, it's funny you should say that. I thought exactly the same thing, that they might have, you know, uh, put the mm -hmm. exhaust pipe into the, into the car. And we, and we both commented and we kind of laughed. We turned around and, just, we turned around and went back and made sure, because this person's looking up their directory or something <laughs> like that. But it's just the way an Ambo Mines works. And a thousand other people driven We're past just, that car and not just, even thought things. We both drove past it and we thought somebody trying to kill themselves inside the car. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that, that is a, a, a bit of a weird example. Um, but but yeah, you sit you sit in a restaurant, uh, you watch somebody fill them fill them stomachs full of um, crap and brown and cakes and sugar and and uh, and they're already five or ten kilos overweight. I think ah, what what does the next five years look like for you? Will will will, will you be our next patient? Do so. you, do, is there a bit of almost like that like when you see somebody doing that? Is like now. Are you going to be the prick who calls me up and expects to be rescued by me? You know, this person who is 30 kilos overweight because they're chewing on all that sort of stuff. You're looking at it in five years' time, they're going to be a, they're going to be a patient of mine. But are you going to be the, the person? Is that going? Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. You, are you? Are you going to be? Do you go? And I'm going to have to come and rescue your ass. Oh, yeah, and you're going to, yeah. and you're going to have this sense of entitlement that you. You you need you you have to be fixed. You're the ambulance guy. Fix me. Yeah, that's right. Does, does regardless, I've spent the last thirty years abusing yeah. myself. Yeah. But that's that's you know what, what we do. We we're very bad at you know in your twenties you're bulletproof. But what you said was interesting a little while ago was that twenty five year olds are having heart disease. Mm. Like, is it more than ever? Yeah, and thirty thousand of us drop. At, 30,000 of us last year just dropped dead. Stone motherless dropped dead. Lots of us got warnings or chest pain. 30 other thousand just yeah. dropped, dropped dead. And, but did they have other factors? I mean, well, I know. Some of them just would have had a bit of plaque break yeah. up and just yeah. go straight in the coronary artery and back. The instant deaths, the ones that just hit the ground, mm. is where a bit of plaque just drops off, floats around through the artery and, and clogs the Clocks which which could happen any time for anybody. Happen to anybody, yeah. Anybody, any yeah. time. So that's that's kind of in the so in the realm of you can't do anything about that one. No, no. But to answer your question, which is a kind of a bit of an ambulance secret, really, but um, because generally people um, you know think our compassion to people, other people is amazing, and most of the time it is. But 
Yeah, look, I, I, when you do go to somebody that's abused their body for their whole life and they're 45 kilos overweight and they're morbidly ill and they live mm. on the, uh, you know, the fourth floor of a walk-up um, building that's got no lift and they've just suddenly had a cardiac arrest and then the ambulance rocks up there and uh, here's somebody like me that has spent all those years maintaining look after myself. Now I'm caring for a guy that's morbidly overweight and cardiac arrest on the fourth floor and I've got to treat him, look after him, then somehow get him down to the ambulance. So we're trying to manage a, a very big person onto a stretcher, down a flight of stairs, put, all my, put our, our limbs and our backs at risk and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think, my God, you know, like I've looked after myself, you've chosen not to, and now you're going to damage me by trying to save your, your goddamn life. Yeah. So yeah, those things, those things do annoy me. And can I just... Can I just say one other thing on that too, that uh, you know, I look at uh, people that choose to abuse their bodies um, by consistently eating poor, by smoking, by all those things that we know are going to cause long-term damage. And yet in the public system, they'll get exactly the same rights as somebody else. Mm. And I think, is that fair? If I look at, if we're both in the public system and I've looked after myself all my, all my life and suddenly my heart needs attention against the person that's in the same waiting room that's been a smoker for 50 years, that's, that's, that's 55 kilos overweight and doesn't exercise, has also now got a heart problem, who should, who should, who should go into the operating table first to have their heart looked at? That, well, that, you, <laughs> that opens up a whole can of worms, isn't it? Because that, that's, that's a whole, I think they have, they have systems, uh, when we lived in New Zealand, they had a, we didn't really know much about it, but I remember a friend of mine saying, oh, my father, won't be able to qualify for that because he's over a certain age. Mm. So they don't even bother. Mm. And yeah, so well that, and that, that's and, age, yeah. And then it said because he is also blam blam blam, he went on saying oh, he, he won't qualify for these reasons as mm. well. So maybe some places do it, but yeah, like we don't. We don't do it here. It's, it's it, it, that's some of the private health systems have point have yeah. do have points, points where they'll reward you based on based on your blood scores and things yeah. like that. But I think, it, I think there's, uh, there's probably enough in it to sort of say to the Medicare's, the government funds, to yeah. also have a point score, that if you choose to do this, this and this, you'll get priorities over, yeah. over other people. I'd like uh -huh. to see something like that yeah, come I, in I so people how, look after I, I themselves a little bit more. I don't know how we can do that. Yeah, I don't know how they do that. But, but so I, don't, I just don't know why, especially if you're talking about especially cardiac disease, which is probably our biggest killer in the country, um, I just don't know why it's got so hard to look after ourselves or I wonder if people are just so naive or they just don't really think that it's going to happen, happen to them. I think it's a combination of all those things and we're fortunate, I mean, where we live, hmm. we live in these sort of not so, you're not in the middle. When I've spent time in the middle of a city, as I have to for work and stuff, I find it very hard to get the healthy food. It's to get that stuff. It's really not as accessible. The accessible food is always the processed food. Yes. The accessible food, the, the, the one that you can get without, if you're in a city without having to go to miles and miles out of your way mm. is bad food. And how many times have you been on a conference or something like that and you find out that the food that's available that is there is really bad. It, it's really bad. So, what? It's why is why are we why are we not mandating 
certain healthy foods, that there has to be certain healthy foods at oh, places or? I think, you know. I think generally speaking now, there's a, uh, and lots of the um, service stations and the Caltexes and things like that, uh, more so than it used to be all pies and chips and yeah. fried food. Now there's often, you know, Sam, so I think there has yeah. been a, a big shift, but the junk food is still readily available. You still have to make a choice. So I, I, I still think it's probably a poor excuse because nine times out of 10, if you are on conference or are away or you're doing night shift in the ambulance, uh, at, at midnight, you can go to McDonald's and pick up a Big Mac uh, or get a pie and chips from the garage. Um, or there's a 99% chance you can make a better eating choice. It might be the best one that you would have made at home with your home cooked meal, mm. uh, but you can still make reasonably good choices. So then, but it, I've been in those positions where the choice, it's harder to make because it's less convenient and the easy choice. So it, it's that becomes that what's easy to do. That the what, harder thing to do is to, is to be eat healthy. The easier thing to do is to eat Yeah, unhealthy. well here's, yeah. Uh, here's my other thinking when it comes to good, continuously good eating. I mean, you, you have to set off from uh, at a reasonably young age and make an eating, a healthy eating plan for life. It's a, it's a 60, 70 year commitment. Yeah, so who does that? Well, well, I, well, I, I have. You I have. Know, I, but I didn't plan it from no. the beginning. Um, I remember. I mean, I used to smoke. So that's. Uh, been, yeah, yeah. Thirty. <laughs> it's been thirty years since I smoked. So, um, but I didn't give up. When I gave up, I remember not giving. I didn't give up because of longevity issues or worried about lung cancer, worried about things. I gave up because it was actually stopping me doing, slowing me down, and doing the things I really like to do. Yeah. All the athletic things. Yeah. So it wasn't to save my life. It was to give me better instantaneous results on being able to climb hills and mountains and stuff that I was doing at the time. So I didn't do it for the long term, I did it for the short term. Yeah. So I think as humans we're really bad at doing that. If, I, if somebody had said, you've got to give up smoking because when you're 60 it's going to come back and bite you at age 27, I would have gone, no, 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 no. But I did it because I wanted to, The I was getting, it was detracting from the other things I enjoyed. So. That's, I think, the only way you could... I couldn't make a plan when I was 27 to say I'm, what I'm going to do. I just liked to do things that were really active mm. that took a high toll on my body, so I needed to keep my body well looked after. And I've always been interested in that. So that was the other thing. So, But it wasn't because I'm sitting there going at 27 going, I've got to make a commitment. It's like the guys I, I work with who are... 23 who are already planning their retirement. I could not think that far mm. ahead of my life. I mm. could not make that plan. So it has to be, there has to be a, an instantaneous gratification way mm. of getting the health message across. Mm. What is the short, I mean, I've heard of things people say, oh, well, you know, you, that for men especially, you know, you, you increase your virility, you increase your testosterone production, mm. yeah, all, all those, those things. things. Mm. So you get that instantaneous boost, but did you actually sit down in your 20s and think, I'm going to have a lifetime commitment here because when I'm 70? Or is that now in hindsight? I don't think I had a lifetime. I don't think at that stage I, had a, I was thinking when I was 70, mm. but I certainly had a commitment, whether it was for the following day or the following week, I just had a commitment that I needed to feed the machine 
reasonably well. Is that because you just because you wanted to look better naked so you could get more <laughs> sex? That's all it was. Wasn't it? Well, there might have been some of, <laughs> there might have been some some of those components. Yeah. Uh, but I, I don't know. I just um, and I might have come from my family. I don't know where it came from. But boy, oh boy, do we need it more so than ever right now? Um, punched into schools and workplace and things like that because I reckon, I reckon that good eating on a consistent on a reasonably. I'm not saying never eat crap. Yeah. But on a consistent basis, is a sign of our mental health. Well, I, I think uh, I think we need to be. Yeah. I, I think to to continuously eat well is how powerful our our minds are to be able to make those those consistent decisions to consistently eat well. I reckon that's a that's a good a good measure of our mental health. And just just the other point is you you were just saying then I need that immediate gratification and and things like that. Seventy percent of serotonin which is the, the, the neurotransmitter that fires through our neurons, that the one that we generally all know about is the one that makes us feel good. 70% uh, of that serotonin is produced in our gut. So don't eat crap again, don't, ex mm. don't eat shit and expect to feel terrific, so, so you won't. So if you were doing it to, for sound mental health, uh, if you were doing it to, uh, for good cardiovascular care and good stroke care, or uh, that, that's the other thing, Cam. One, uh, Australia, Australia. I mean, I don't know why we need so, you know, so many goddamn reasons to make to make changes. But one third of us are on track to be a diabetic by 2050 in this country. I, that, it, that, that's 100 percent food related. That staggers me. It staggers one me. One third. A third of the people, yeah. and it's totally food related. I, totally food related. Type two di lifestyle choice diabetics. Yes. Absolutely. So. If there was a zombie apocalypse and the only thing you could get was what you could eat in your garden, type 2 diabetes would disappear along with half the population Absolutely. as well. Totally, almost type totally 2 terrible. diabetes is a total modern man's Yeah, disease. those 30,000 people that just dropped in from a heart attack, those 4 million people with cardiac disease, the one third of us, they're going to get morbidly ill by diabetes by 2050. Just imagine if I just woke up tomorrow morning and said, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to set the sail for a, a consistently healthy life. Almost all of that morbidity goes away. All that trauma in people's lives goes away. All that mental health goes away. All that, you know, that carnage and oh, all the crap that goes with it. I just can't, man, I can't fathom why you would set out to put your hand up to say, yep, I'd, I'd like to be one of those diabetics, please. I'll just, I'll, I'll stay on the third statistical data. <laughs> yeah, well, it, yeah I, I want to be one of those diabetics with the huge ass that, that, <laughs> that eats lots of sugar donuts. You know, that's, that's what I... I, 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 it staggers me to think that if it's that simple, why isn't everyone doing it? Yeah. If it's that simple, if it's, if, if it's that simple to eat healthy, you know, like if you wake up tomorrow morning and the only thing you could eat was what was grown in the garden and all these things would go away, is it, I mean, I, I, I use the thing of, of really, really poor countries. Is it a, a, a disease of prosperity, this, the type 2 diabetes? diabetes? Or, well, yeah. uh, actually, I don't think it is because I think it's a disease of prosperity. I've seen, I saw it in the Maldives. I guess they, they went from being a very small, thin population when I first started going there to a very overweight population in the big city and because of all the shops had all the sugars, foods, and um, so... Yeah. We've been, we have been, for the last 30 years, we have been educated um, with our, and our governments have stood by and allowed it with billions of dollars worth of advertising. 
uh, we've progressively over the last 30 years had all the uh, all the fat um, sucked out of food in the belief that it was no fat or low fat, it yeah. was good for us. Yeah. And so, in fact, there's a really interesting little story to this because about 30 years ago, um, the chief medical scientist at the American White House was summoned to say, Americans are getting bigger, what are we going to do? And they turned around and they said, you know what, I think it's the, um, the sugar. So they went to pull sugar out of the diet. But at that stage, the sugar industry were powerful lobby groups of the White House. They said, don't touch our sugar, we'll pull our funding. So I went back to the big uh, boardrooms of the White House and they said, well, we better do something. So they started, said, well, we'll just pull fat out. So they started sucking fat out of food. Fast forward 30 years, virtually everything on our shelves and promoted as healthy for yeah, us is low fat. was low fat, no fat. But of course, they sucked the fat out of food and it tasted Pumped like shit. Pumped in sugar. Yeah. So what they did, pumped in sugar. The average can of, the average, um, you know, couple hundred gram tin of yo tub of yogurt or 300 gram tub of yogurt um, that 30 years ago had two or three teaspoons of sugar and, you know, for six or seven, eight grams of fat now has no fat, low fat uh, and has about 30 teaspoons of sugar in it. So, 30 teaspoons of sugar. Could you imagine Could you imagine me coming over here now and we have a cup of tea oh yeah, and you pass me the sugar and while I'm talking to you, I put in 33 teaspoons of sugar. Into a well, that's exactly what you do when you eat that tub of yogurt. I know. So when, when because now I'm, I've turned into one of those label readers. I'm a label reader every time I buy something now. And I try to say, okay, per 100 grams, I'll, uh, if I buy something that's processed, I want it to have like as little sugar as possible. So six or seven grams per hundred grams. That's what my I use as my market. You know, anything if I can buy breakfast cereal, I go through the mueslis and I go. Yeah, there's one that's got eight grams of sugar, but most of them are like thirty-five grams of sugar per hundred grams. Know. Yeah. So I buy the lowest sugar. Is it if you cut out all sugar in your diet, how much of a increase? And decrease in diabetes would be. Oh, well, look, it's massive. And remember, just um, uh, for medicos listening out there, it, it's not. There's a big cut as far as uh, sugar's direct association uh, become a to become a diabetic. There's a, certainly a hypothesis to say it's not the sugar, but it's certainly the fat. The fat gain, so the excess sugar turns into a fat, which causes the problem. So I just want to just want to clarify. Yeah, yeah. That. So you, you, it's not the sugar that's a problem. It's just the energy. It's that. Well, the compacted that, form of energy yeah. going into your body. You've got too many calories to you do anything with. Well, that then that converts into a to fat. A fat. Yeah. And so and so and then the more sugar that sits in our arteries, the pancreas, um, uh, that organ that in our stomach, in our abdomen, produces a hormone called insulin. And insulin is a street sweep. It sweeps the sugar out of your arteries and drops it into the muscle cells and gives it energy. So if the pancreas is producing insulin all the time, just trying to trying to clean out the crap that's in our arteries and get into our muscle cells, it eventually runs out of puff. So the insulin starts to dry up, the pancreas gets sluggish, and the next thing you know, you're feeling tired and fatigued, you're urinating a lot, and you go to the doctor's doctor, 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 something's wrong with me. And your diet alone has, 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 has caused the pancreas to fail. Uh, you'll go back in there, then the doctor will give you a, a prescription for a little vial of insulin that your pancreas finally once made, hand you a stack of syringes, you're going to inject that stuff into the veins for the rest of your days, and not only then, now you're going to have to eat well, because if you don't, you're going to die. I know, so that's, so, that, that's what... So the, now you can't you, eat crap at all. Yeah, you've, <laughs> you've it made yourself a type 2 diabetic, and because of that making yourself a type 2 diabetic, you have to eat healthy. Yeah. Whereas if you had have eaten healthy before, you wouldn't be yeah, a type yeah. 2 diabetic. And if you weren't a type 2 diabetic, if you ate healthy, you could every now and again absolutely gorge yourself on, on donuts. 
Yes. Yes. Yeah. You know, and, and go. Yeah. Look, mate, I haven't had a donut for a yeah. month, man. Yeah. I'm going to have. I'm going to have a big cheese of chocolate cake yeah. and and a and a pizza and a ten beers. Yeah. And do that because you don't do that all the time. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So we've got to remember, nutrition now is a um, is is a very tricky subject which requires you know a lot of education to understand it properly yeah. and they've delib almost deliberately made it so complicated it, it's too complicated so, so i say to people like you and i and people listening mm -hmm. to this podcast today i say in the ambulance we have a say saying do something rather than nothing if next first aid or cardiac arrest don't just stand there or watch somebody bleed to do something right jump on someone's chest if you don't do something rather than nothing when it comes to eating and looking after yourself i say okay Let's not look at the whole staircase one step at a time. Let's do something rather than nothing. So let's start. Let's start just with sugar. Before we think of preservatives and, and all the other crap and the things that causes Parkinson's disease and neurological diseases and, and cancers, and let's just start with, with one of the things on the labelling. Let's start with carbohydrates. So if you go into a shopping centre tomorrow and you're grabbing your stuff, turn to the label, look at the total carbohydrates, um, whatever it is, say it's 50 grams of sugar per serving or whatever, um, divide that by four. Every four grams is equivalent to about one teaspoon. Start doing the math. Like you, you, you would have to sit there and think, oh, crikey, I didn't know there was 12 teaspoons in a bottle of Coca-Cola or 11 teaspoons in, a, in, a, in an orange juice or a, an apple juice or, um, or 30 teaspoons in this yogurt that I've been feeding the kids tonight and things like that. Just start making decisions and put it back. And, and your whole... Sh Sudden, almost overnight, your trolley, shopping trolley, will look totally different. Yeah, it would look totally different. Yeah, totally different. I mean, it does. Our shopping trolley looks different to the person. And we always, we always, I do, Angela does, you, I don't know, you, you match up the shopping trolley with the person. Yeah, You know, Absolutely. And, you go, and you go, well, Absolutely. yeah, that shopping trolley looks like that person. Because, the, and, and you see the healthy person, their shopping trolley matches. Oh, and, I didn't, and, mate, I couldn't yeah. tell you how many times I sit at the checkout and exactly that scenario happens. person in front of me is overweight, pre-diabetic, pre-cardiac arrest, and their trolley is horrendous with all this crap. I just feel like pulling them aside and say, look, can I have a bit of a chat to you about, well, your, see, well, that's, about your shopping? Yeah, and I, I'm wondering, is it, is it their fault? Or is it, are, they, are they the generation that never learnt how to how to do this the, the education is not there on how no they've, to, they've been indoctrinated by billions of dollars worth of advertising, advertising educating them that this that, that this stuff is good for you we've, ac we've actually I say it's a government or it's a well you know someone's allowed the, the, the ads to go ahead to, to sell us no fat low fat which has made it turn a nation into diabetics yeah turn us into it, 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 it's I just think it's a crime you know like and, and of course now it's going to take 30 years to shift it back. So all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there is a move to put fats back in food, and, yeah. and uh, which you're starting to see on the shelves now. Yeah. I think, my God, they're going to now they're just going to turn all of this back. I know. And so is it going to, is it going to go in yeah. a cycle? It's I don't, gonna, I don't it's, know. It's Wait, so, Paul, I wanted to sort of find a way to conclude this interview because this has been a good interview about it more because we got to like what it is you're passionate about that being in ambulance has driven you to get to this passionate about these things from what you're seeing in ambulance but where do you where do you see your progression in the net what do you think will be your wheelhouse next year will it be the same sort of things? Are you well can i say to you this cam just going back to that 
uh, that earlier question about saving lives in the ambulance. Uh, I work part-time now in the ambulance and part-time now as a speaker, selling people, um, almost pleading people and educating people to make lifestyle, make changes now. Don't let trauma be the catalyst for change. And, and in that environment as a speaker, uh, educating and teaching people about sugars and diabetes and cardiac disease and telling them some homegrown stories. I have saved way many lives, way more many lives than that I've ever had in ambulance uh, by talking to people rather than treating them as an ambulance as an ambulance man. Because in the ambulance, um, I'm, uh, they're already having the cardiac arrest, they've already got the diabetes, they're already morbidly ill, they've already got a chronic disease and then the ambulance comes in. But as a speaker, as a speaker I can use all that knowledge and I can wind the clock back 10 years and I say, hey, let's, let's not get there in the first place. So, 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 and as a result, and from mental health too, I mean, the letters you get from people to say, if I didn't go to this presentation today, I was, I, I was thinking about killing myself. Um, so from a mental health, you look after yourself mentally, how you look after yourself physically. So, so, so that's that part of the question. To answer your question directly is, you know, the next 12 months or so, look, um, Absolutely, my sales are, are well set now. Uh, ambulance will, will always be in my life because I, I enjoy the work, I enjoy my patients, I enjoy my work colleagues, but I do that, I would like to do that more and more part-time and I would like to spend more time uh, speaking to people, speaking to corporations, um, writing a book at the moment um, to you know talk to people on mental health and things like that. So, so I would think that, I, I would like to think I can, um, you know, my business, which is called The Wake Up Call. So what is your business called? So the, the, the Wake Up Call. And has uh, it got a website? The website is www.thewakeupcall.me, M-E. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you look that up, you'll just see some of the work that we're doing, or that I'm doing in that area. But, um, but yeah, I hope to be a major voice uh, in the area of um, uh, preventing morbidity um, physically and mentally in this country. Is it, is, that's kind of as a purely selfish reasons because you don't want any more patients than you already have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, well, maybe. No, I, I mean, I, first and foremost, you... First and foremost, I guess you set out to do it for your family, yeah. uh, your family and your friends. But um, boy, oh boy, there, there, there needs to be a voice out there. And if we w sit back and wait for the governments to keep us well, or our doc, I mean, just as a byproduct, I mean, I always say to people, you, if you think you're, if you left your life in your hands of your doctor, you are surely going to die. All those people that say, oh, the doctor said, oh, what's your blood pressure? Oh, the doctor, I don't know, but the doctor, um, the doctor obviously thinks it's okay. And think, well, have, hang on a moment, you just left the doctor's surgery, had your blood pressure taken, and you don't even know the, you don't know your blood pressure, you don't know the pressure that keeps you alive. That, I mean, that's another podcast for another time. But how talking about cardiovascular disease again quickly, um, one in five of us with cardiac disease, four million of us potentially going to drop dead. Thirty thousand of us other, did drop dead, and then and then you ask a uh, ask a room full of three hundred people, what's your blood pressure? And maybe one person puts their hand up. So I say to this, I say to the audience listening, what, what's your resting blood pressure? If you don't know, that should have big alarm bells twirling around in your head to say, how, how do I not know the very pressure that keeps me alive? Turn around and ask them what the tyre pressure is in their family car. Oh, yeah, I know that. What's more, the car's probably got the good oil, the good fuel. Uh, God forbid there hasn't been service. The fuel injectors are due to service, darling, to make sure it's get done. But the heart hasn't been touched.